Uh, be seated if you are standing, and uh, please take out your Bibles. Turn to Philippians. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3 is where we are going to be this morning. Oh, what an amazing week we had last week celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Oh, the glory of Jesus. The thing that I love about these verses that we are going to dive into, specifically just two this morning, verses 7 and 8, they are all about Jesus Christ. They are all about putting Jesus on display for us to see. And if there's anyone worth seeing and savoring, it is Jesus, above and beyond anyone in this world, above and beyond anything in this world, not only for who he is and for what he's done, but for how much he loves us. These verses, as you know, as we've been going through, are all about justification. And really, if you look at verses 1 through 16 of chapter 3, if you look at it as a whole, you see the beginning, middle, and after of what justification looks like. It's really a testimony that Paul is giving before justification, then when justification happens. The crux verse is verse 9 that we are going to look at next week, Lord willing. And that is when justification actually took place in Paul's life. The verses that we are going to look at this morning are really the shift when Paul began to understand what justification was and the radical shift in his mind that led to his justification. And then after justification, we can see in verse 12 and all the way through verse 16 that your life just begins. Your pursuit just begins. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks that if you say, oh, I'm justified. I know I can't do anything to earn salvation, so I freely rest in the gift of God. And then you do nothing and your life does not change and you are not pressing on to pursue Jesus Christ and lay hold of him and press on and strive forward strain forward, as Paul's going to say in verse 13. If that's not you, if you're just coasting, then maybe you haven't truly been justified. So this is really a testimony of Paul. Before justification, we saw two weeks ago his profit and loss column. You remember he had seven things that he could account uh, before God, saying, look at all that I am, look at who I am. Some of it's inherited, some of it has been given to me, some of it I have obtained myself. But the bottom line is I have many things to commend me to God. And in verse 7, he's going to say it's all loss. It's all loss. If you want to know what it looks like, if you were to ask Paul, if you were to be here and you were to ask him, Paul, what does it look like? How do you live out to live as Christ and to die as gain? These 16 verses is how you live that out. Paul is giving himself to us as an example of how to live out those words in chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let me read the verses that we have before us uh, this morning. Verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 11 to give us context. But he begins in verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them all but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In our two verses this morning, I know you do not have a bulletin. Um, That is totally Ethan's fault, so blame him if you see him. If I were to give this uh, sermon a title, it could either be, if you want the long title, it would be uh, the kind of counting that changes everything. You see in these three verses, the word count three different times in the two verses, verse seven and eight, you see the word count or counted or counting three different times. That's what we're going to focus on, what that word count means, why Paul brings it up three times in the span of two verses. So I thought about the count from Sesame Street when he would say, I'm not even going to attempt his voice, but when he would say, uh, two, two of whatever, two rubber duckies, ah, three, three rubber duckies, and he would just count and count and count. This is the kind of counting, unlike his, that really just helps you in math, unlike his, this is the kind of counting that changes everything you do, who you are, what you believe, everything. This counting changes everything. If you want the short sermon title, Jesus is better. That's the short sermon title. You can either go with the kind of counting that changes everything or just Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That word count, if you see in verse 7, he says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. And then he says in verse 8, more than that, I count all things. And then he goes all the way down, I've suffered the loss of all things, and count, uh, verse 8b, if you will, I count them but rubbish. Three times in two verses. What does count mean? Let me give you a couple different definitions to help define it for us. Literally, it just means to believe, to think, to consider. To believe, to think, to consider. So it's a logical reasoning. It's a seeing of something and believing it and considering it and mulling over. But more technically and more specifically, counting is, let me give you a better definition that really fleshes out what it means. It's to arrive at a sure judgment based on a careful weighing of the facts. This isn't haphazardly seeing something and going, oh yeah, that's great, I'll believe that. It's to arrive at a sure judgment based on a careful weighing of the the facts. Sure judgment. You have no doubt and a careful weighing of the facts. In the words of Jesus that we're going to look at in a little bit, counting the cost, Uh, Luke chapter 14. We must count the cost and as we see Okay, which is truly better? How am I supposed to live? As we see those options before us, Paul will count, consider, mull over, and come to a conclusion that he is sure of. He has come to a judgment because of what he's learned, because of what he's believed, because of what he's thought and considered. And so we, too, must come to this. Maybe some of you already have, Lord willing, but we must come to This radical change in our thinking, a considering of what's out there, who Jesus is, what the world has to offer. And so we're going to look at just three areas that we must change our thinking. Just three areas. First, we must change our thinking about ourselves. 
We must change our thinking about ourselves. We're going to look inwardly, then we're going to look at Christ, and then we're going to look at salvation, suffering, and satisfaction all lumped in in one very, very pregnant verse. Number one, a change in our thinking about ourselves. Paul begins in verse 7 with a very important word. My Bible says, but whatever things we're getting to mean. There are basically, there are three ways of comparing and contrasting in the Greek. And it's kind of, eh, this is close, this is similar, this is pretty different. This is radically different. Here, this is a radical difference. Over here, we have seven things that Paul had reason to boast in. If you go back to verse 5, he was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the nation of Israel. He was the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, he was found blameless. But all of those things that could potentially commend him to God, he says all of those are now, though they were in the gains column, they are now in the loss column. They were profit to me. I poured out my life chasing down and pursuing those things, and now they're lost. He starts by saying, but... Contrast, huge, stark contrast. Whatever things were gained to me, he says, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. But whatever things were gained to me, that word gain is a very technical accounting term. Whatever things were profits to me, now I count them as loss. Literally, it says, whatever things were gains to me, Oh, I had so much going for me. I had everything going for me. Paul had every reason to be happy in the flesh. But when he met Jesus, he was totally enamored by Jesus and he realized the truth. Nothing that we have can commend us to God. Nothing we are, nothing we can do can give us a right standing before God. We need a change in thinking about ourselves I had all of these things going for me. I fasted. I worshipped every single Sunday. I was doing all of these different things. Are those going to commend you to God? Paul says they cannot. They cannot. Whatever things were gains to me. I had multiple gains. Those things I have counted as loss. Past tense, right? I have counted. One time, long ago, I have counted. There's actually two ways of conveying that in the Greek. There's a past tense, and then there's also something called the perfect tense. Um, this is the perfect tense. And the reason why you need to know that is because the emphasis in a past tense verb, if this were just merely past tense, he's looking at the action. He's saying, I counted in the past, and that's all he cares about, what happened in the past. The reason why the Greek language has a perfect tense is because the emphasis is not on what happened in the past. It's what's happening now because of what happened in the past. That's a perfect tense. So he's saying, yes, this happened in the past, but what matters is the effects still matter today. They're still going on today. That's the perfect tense. It is some action that happened at a one-time place in the past with its effects still taking place today. So the emphasis is on the effects that are still happening He uses a perfect here to say, there was one time in the past that I counted, and today it changed everything. It still is changing everything. I counted it in the past, and it changed my life. Remember, there is a before 
before justification, for justification, in and during justification, the process of justification in verse 9, and then after, the effects of justification. What we're going to see, or what we're seeing here in verse 7, is that before Paul was justified, he had to have a radical shift and change in his thinking. That's what he's describing. There was a point in time in which I thought I was good enough to earn heaven. I wasn't too bad. I was actually pretty good. You go to anybody in the world, and they will pretty much on average say, I'm a decent person. Ask them, do you think you're a good person? Nah. They compare themselves to other people. I'm not, I'm not like Hitler, so I'm doing okay. Instead of comparing to God, and that's what Paul had to do when he met God on the road to Damascus, in view of Christ's holiness, I have to change something. I am not good. We sing it in Rock of Ages. Uh, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. I can't fulfill the law. The law is there not to give us a, a book of rules that if we keep in its entirety, we get to go to heaven. That's what we have turned the law into. The law is there to show us we could never keep it, and we need a Savior. And so Paul says, no, I, I, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Wash me, Savior, or I die. If you don't do the work, I will perish. It's a radical change in thinking about what we have to offer, what we have to give to God. And he has counted it on that road to Damascus as loss. And because of his counting, he was justified. This is right before the moment of justification. If you still believe that there's something in you that will merit good standing before God, you cannot be justified. You cannot. So there has to be a shift in your thinking. There has to be a change in your thinking that will lead you to a place where you say, okay, I need the righteousness of another. And that's where he's going to go in verse 9, where justification actually happens. Now I'm found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own, which was in verses 5 through 6, but now it's a righteousness which comes from God alone. It's God giving me righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're seeing a shift to get us to the place of justification. So the, the question is, have you had this shift in your thinking? We spent a lot of time looking at this two weeks ago, so we don't have to belabor the point, but what is it that you so cling to as hope that God would look upon you with favor because of something you do? In the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, he says, deny yourself. I think a lot of times we think of that in sort of a masochistic way of all the pleasures that you want, you can't do that. If you want to eat a cookie, no, deny yourself. If you want a piece of apple pie, no, deny yourself. But I think involved in denying yourself is deny yourself pleasures that are sinful, but also deny yourself, give up yourself and all of your goodness to offer to God. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Have you come to a place where you have acknowledged that you have nothing to bring to God? When you do, your love for Jesus skyrockets. Because now you know, he took my place, he is my righteousness, apart from him, I am condemned. Now I have an advocate before the Father. If you think you have some offerings to give to God, then Jesus will be pretty cool. But you're kind of awesome too. How do you come to God? Do you come with religiosity? Do you come with good works? Or do you come with nothing in your hands? Why did Paul count 
all things or count specifically, he's going to say these profits, these gains. Why does he count these seven things in verses five and six as loss? Because of the sake of Christ. End of verse seven. Because of the sake of Christ. He says, I have two options here. I can either keep on trusting in myself and I lose Jesus and I lose the father and I lose heaven. Or I can count all these things as loss and I gain Christ. I'll do that for the sake of Christ. We have to have a radical change in our thinking about ourselves and what we can offer. But this change in your thinking about yourself really will not come to full fruition unless you have a change in your thinking about who Jesus is. And that's number two. A change in your thinking about Jesus, about Christ. We see this clearly in verse 8 where Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. More than that. These, these words, more than that, translated in the English, this is a hopelessly untranslatable string of words in the Greek. Absolutely make, makes no sense. Uh, let me give you literally what the Greek says. But... Indeed, therefore, at least even this. That's literally what the Greek is. So, translators go, yeah, more than that. More than that. But you can see his point. He is oozing for all of us to see an understanding and a sense that, no, no, it's not just the seven things that I say, oh, I don't need these, now I have Jesus. It's, I count everything. It's not just the seven things, just in case you were wondering, oh, only seven, but now I can also trust in myself other than those seven things. No, it's everything. And a lot of people ask, well, isn't he just being redundant here? Because he already said that. Not all these things is lost for the sake of Christ. He already said that. But there's two reasons why he's not being redundant in verse 8. Um, in verse 7, he says, I have counted. Perfect tense. Happened one time in the past. Its effects are still going on in the, in the future. Verse 8 it's present tense. I am counting. I continue to count. So I counted one time and justification happened there and now I am still counting. I'm still counting. Secondly, he's not just counting these seven things anymore. He said in verse 7, whatever things were gains to me, specifically those seven things in verses 5 and 6. Now he says more than that, I count everything to be lost. You name it, and he says, nope, loss. So those are two very clear reasons why this is not a redundant statement. So why does Paul say, I keep on counting? I am continuing to count things as loss. This should be hope infused into your soul. The Apostle Paul says, believer, I still struggle in two areas in my view of Christ. I still struggle to think that maybe, just maybe, I can do something now to earn good standing before Christ. I can do something now. Maybe, just maybe. And he has to tell himself over again, no, I have to count it as loss. It will not get me right standing before Christ. And secondly, maybe, just maybe, there's something in the world that will satisfy me in a greater capacity than Jesus can. And he has to time and time again tell himself, I count Jesus as better. And all of these things as loss. It should be a hope to our soul 
As one writer says, Paul is saying that the settled decision he made in the past as a result of careful reflection is not enough. It must be reinforced daily by continuous, conscious, moral choices against depending upon himself, who he is, the things he possesses, what he's accomplished, and the rest for gaining favor with God. It's a continual battle. This is why that um, just kind of catchphrase in Christianity, preaching the gospel to yourself, that's what this is. I cannot earn my salvation before God. Not the moment I was saved, not 30 years after I was saved, not on my deathbed is there ever going to be anything that I can say, look God, you should save me because of what I have to offer you. There has to be a radical change in our thinking about who Jesus is to say everything else in in comparison to him is loss. He says more than that, verse 8, I count all things to be loss in view of or because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is all worthless because of surpassing value. We're talking about worth. We're talking about what is worthy of your affections. And he says, there's so many things over here that are worthy of my affections to pour my life into. But when I compare them to Jesus, he's better. He's better than sin. He's better than righteous works. Even our good works are as filthy rags. He's better than all. And so Paul gladly says, I'll let go of everything to gain him. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, shortest parable in the Bible, the the shortest parable that Jesus spoke. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. Before I was living my life, I was wandering around. I didn't care about Jesus. I didn't care about God. Everything was fine. And I pursued worldly pleasures and worldly righteousness. It didn't matter. But then I stumbled upon Jesus. Or to be more precise, Jesus ran me down. And when I saw him, I realized... Oh, I'd give up everything to have him. I'd give up everything to have him. That's the radical change in thinking. You have to stare at Jesus and everything else in this world and say, he's better. And that does not come overnight, brothers and sisters. That does not come in a one-time moment where you go, I'm good, Jesus is always going to be better and I'm fine. That's a daily fight. You have to battle, in the words of John Piper, you have to battle unbelief in this truth. Is he really better? Is he better than the sin that you so often crave? Is he better than the righteousness that you think you could do to earn right standing before God? So before we jump into, sure, I'll sign a card, I'll pray a prayer, I'll walk an aisle, and I'll be done. Luke 14.33 is really the opposite of Matthew 13.44. So remember Matthew 13.44, Luke 14.33. Kind of switch it around. It's the opposite. Count the cost. Are you willing to give up everything to follow him? This man in Matthew, 40, in Matthew 13, verse 44, says, I'll give up everything because of the joy over finding Jesus. 
Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, it's not one awesome pearl with a number of other pearls that he wanted to buy the whole bunch. It was one pearl and that's it. One pearl and nothing else. And he went and he sold all that he had and he bought it. Everything. It's going to cost you your house? Sure, fine, sell it. I need the money to get what's better than my house. It's going to cost you everything. That's why Jesus says in Luke 14, count the cost. Are you truly not only willing to give up everything to follow Jesus, but the real question is, do you see Jesus as more desirable than everything you'd have to give up? That's the question. There's a radical change in your thinking that he is better. And brothers and sisters, that's why we come and gather together. That's the whole reason we have fellowship, because if we just at one moment in time said, he's better, If you share the gospel with somebody and they say, he's better, I'll follow him. We forget. Our flesh clouds our minds. Sin fogs up our understanding. And before we know it, we're saying, is is he really better? I'm not sure. I know intellectually is, but I don't remember. And that's why we gather together as the people of God and stare at him and savor him. We taste and see that the Lord is good so that every Sunday, every Wednesday, every Thursday, every time we gather together, every time we're in his word, we're constantly saying, yes, he is better. He is far better. Oh, I remember he is far better. The Puritans used to talk about this all the time in fighting sin in mortifying sin, and mortifying your flesh, you have to have the power of a greater affection that comes in and destroys your affections for sin. You have to fight for satisfaction in Jesus above anything that this world has to offer. Back in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value. It continues to surpass everything in this world of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, knowing, that's not intellectual knowledge. Uh, If you remember in the Old Testament, this word in the Septuagint, this Greek word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, same exact word, and it's used in reference to intimate relations in marriage. Uh, Adam knew his wife Eve. Uh, That language is intimate knowledge. It's intimate knowledge. It's intimate pleasure. It's intimate satisfaction. It's relational. It's not just head knowledge to say, oh, I believe those facts about Jesus. Well, you know better than demons because they believe facts about Jesus too. And they probably have their facts better than you do. This is not just, I know about Jesus. This is, he's everything. He's everything. I love you all. I love you all. But if you give me a chance to hang out with any one of you or to hang out with Hannah, I would be a fool to not choose Hannah. She's my best friend. I love her. And even though I have an amazing amount of love in my heart for you all, she surpasses you guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. She surpasses you. That's what Paul is talking about here. Oh, in view of every other love, in every other affection, every other relational intimacy that I might have with sin, with righteous good works that I could do in this life, all of it. All of it I throw away to know Jesus intimately, relationally. It's not just intellectual knowledge. And I think that he puts an exclamation point on this when he says, Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Did you know that's the only place in the New Testament where Paul ever refers to Jesus as my Lord? Every other time you see Paul speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's our Lord. Our Lord. But here he wants us to know he's personal. He's my Savior. He's my Sovereign. He's my greatest affection. He's everything to me. And I'd gladly give up anything in this world. We would be foolish and stupid and idiotic to give up Christ for gaining what this world has to offer. I just read it again this morning. Somebody tweeted it, that Jim Elliott quote, we would be fools to hold on to the things in this world and lose what's to come. He says it the other way. You would uh, be no fool to give up what you can't even hang on to in the end anyway, to gain what you'll never lose. To gain what you will never lose. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, we sang about it, as saints of old still line the way, retelling triumphs of his grace. Hebrews 11 is all about this. People who say, Jesus is better. And even though they lose their life in horrific ways, even though they lose amazing things, Jesus is better. Jesus is their life and death is gain. Verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 11, we'll just look at one example. You remember Moses, verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, Now, we know we can pretty much narrow down who Pharaoh's daughter is. It's a queen by the name of Hatshepsut, and she was probably the one who found Moses in the Nile River. The reason why we need to know that is because she actually became Pharaoh twice, and there were two times when she um, ascended to become Pharaoh and then came back down uh, when um, a male counterpart would step into that role. There were a couple times when if she had a son, her son would be the one that would step in when she would come down off of the throne. Moses could have been Pharaoh. He could have controlled every single um, square inch of Egypt. And yet, and this is just mind-blowing, he chose, verse 25, choosing rather, that word choosing, by the way, is the exact same Greek word uh, that we see in Philippians 4, counting, He considered, he counted, and he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. That's one reason why Moses decided to stay with God instead of enjoy the pleasures of sin, because he knew they were passing, they were fleeting, they would go away. But verse 26, considering the reproach of Jesus greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking to the reward. This is what blows my mind. Moses shows up on the scene about 1,500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. And yet Moses had faith in a man who would come 1,500 years after him. And he says, I want to be on his side. I'm going to die. Give me 1,500 years. The Christ will come, and I want to be with him. If he could do that, how much more so us looking back, seeing the Messiah, having a record of Jesus knowing he is far more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. 
He considered, verse 26, that's that counting. He counted, he considered, he mulled over, okay, I have every single uh, amount of money and riches in Egypt and I have the Messiah. Who am I going to choose? What am I going to choose? In a, in, a, in a sentence for our own hearts, is Christ worth giving up whatever you hold most dear? Is he worth it? Is he worth it? We have to have a radical change in our thinking about ourselves. We have to have a radical change in our thinking about Jesus, that he is worth it. And turn back to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be done with this last point. Number three, we have to have a radical change in our thinking about suffering, about satisfaction, and about salvation. Just three S's, and they're all there at the end of verse 8. He says, there is a surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So there's a greater satisfaction to be had in Jesus. You also have to suffer when you come to him. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. So he brings about an understanding that you will suffer. You will lose things and you will suffer things when you come to Jesus. But he's better. He's better than any suffering that might befall you. But then salvation is in the picture here. You have to have a, an understanding, a change in your thinking about salvation You're not afraid of losing satisfying things in this world because Jesus is more satisfying. You're not afraid about going through suffering in this world because you will never suffer once you see Jesus face to face and suffering is over and you will be with him for all of eternity. And at the end of verse 8, he says, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them. There's our word again. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. There is salvation. There is justification. I want to gain Jesus. What does it mean to gain Jesus? It means that all of who Jesus is and his righteousness is placed into your account. All of your sin is placed upon Jesus. And in that great transaction that takes place, you have gained Christ. And he'll flesh that out in verse nine for next week. But he says, I count it all. I count it all. The suffering, the amazing value of other things in this world, I count it all Rubbish. That's a nice translation of a very um, dirty word. Scubalon in the Greek, it just means dung, manure. Everything compared to Christ is just manure. I count it all as loss to gain Jesus. As one writer says, salvation is free to you, but once you receive it, it will cost you everything. And Paul says, that's fine, because once I have received it, I have everything. Take away everything from me. I have Jesus. There's nothing else I need. What does this mean practically for us? Let's wrap this up. What does it mean practically for us? I think it means four things, and these four things are outlined by John Piper in an amazing book, and so I'll just give them to you uh, very quickly here. Number one, it means that whenever I am called upon to choose between anything in this world and Christ, I choose Christ. So it means whenever I have a choice to choose something in this world or to choose Christ, I always choose Christ. Again, it doesn't always mean bad things. Often we just think, oh, I can't be involved in sin anymore. I am following Christ. But you can't be involved in works righteousness anymore because you're following Christ. Your endeavors to pursue righteousness do not come from a desire to have right standing before God. They come from an understanding that you already have right standing before God. That's what he's going to say in verse 14. I press on, or verse 12, not that I've already attained it, 
uh, a fullness of an understanding of Jesus Christ, but, and I've not already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ. I'm not pursuing Jesus because I'm afraid I'm going to lose him. I'm pursuing him because he already pursued me. He already sought me and bought me and calls me his own. So if we have a choice to choose anything in this world, good or bad, well, Christ, we choose Christ. Number two, it means that I will deal with the things of this world in ways that draw me nearer to Christ so that I can gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way I use the world. Said simply, we use the things in the world to gain more of Christ. That's what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. Use this world to treasure Christ more. What awakens affections for Jesus? Obviously, his word, spending time with his people, the means of grace that God has given to us. But there are so many other things that can stir our affections for Christ. So many other things. What stirs your affections for Jesus? And on the flip side, what robs your affections for Jesus? Those things you should stay away from. Um, I love sports. I love watching sports. I love playing sports. I just love competition, period. But I can't get too involved in it. I, I, I can't get too involved because if I get too involved, it will begin to rob my affections for Jesus. I will start paying more attention to a bunch of 20-somethings running around with a ball than the God of the universe. It's not that football or baseball or basketball, it's not that they're bad at all. But we need to know what robs affections for Jesus and be careful with those things. Movies, not necessarily wrong. Obviously, there are some that are. But if they begin to rob your affections for Jesus, if they pull your eyes away from the prize of Jesus Christ, we need to know what stirs our affections and we need to know what robs our affections for Jesus. So use the things in this world carefully. Use them to gain more of Christ, to draw you nearer to Christ. Number three, these verses mean that I will always deal with the things of this world in ways that show that they are not my treasure but rather show that Christ is my treasure. I think that's one of the reasons why God gives us things. We know that God gives us gifts to enjoy, but I think one of the reasons why he gives us so many amazing good gifts is to show the world around us, oh, this is an amazing gift, but it doesn't hold a candle to Jesus. Take it away. I lose it. I'm fine. Jesus is better. Do you hold the things in your life loosely that way? Your house, your car, your job, your kids. Amazing treasures that God has given to you, but he himself is the greatest treasure of all. Number four, it means that if I lose anything or all the things in this world that this world can offer, I will not lose my joy or my treasure or my life because Christ is everything. Said another way, take it all away from me. I have Christ. I have everything I need. Everything I need. Piper says it this way. Notice the three ways he expresses, Paul expresses the supreme importance of treasuring Christ. Verse 7, Paul counts everything as lost for the sake of Christ. He is worthy uh, much more than everything else in Paul's life of his affections. Verse 8a, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. To know Christ is more to be desired than anything else in this world. Verse 8b, I count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Gaining Christ 
Having him as your treasure in the final fullness of perfection is better than gaining the world and everything in it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Forfeits Christ. So, what about us? What about us? What about Christ Bible Church? What about you specifically? What about us collectively? What is your thinking about Christ? What's your thinking about yourself? What is your thinking about salvation, about satisfaction, about suffering? Do you think that Jesus is a myth? Do you think he's a magician? Do you think he's a good moral teacher? Do you think he's God but not your Lord? Or do you follow him as your greatest treasure? Remember, and and please remember this, it isn't that the things in this world that this world has to offer, many of them are good things. Even Paul's list that he counts as lost. There's nothing wrong with being circumcised on the eighth day. There's nothing wrong with being born a Jew. There's nothing wrong to having zeal. But what he's saying is, compared to Jesus, it doesn't matter. That's what we need to remember. That's why we always need to have Jesus in the center of our solar system. We always have to have him in the center of our universe. Our spouses are amazing gifts compared to Jesus' loss. Our children are amazing gifts compared to Jesus' nothing. Put Jesus in the center and everything else has its rightful place. Put anything else in the center and Jesus floats away and your entire universe explodes. So it's not that those things are bad things. It's not that we need to become masochistic and hate ourselves and start hating the things around us. Enjoy it. But when you bring Christ into the picture, Christ is far better. Christ is far better. I love Psalm 63. Psalm 63 describes uh, David saying, I'm, I'm yearning. I'm, uh, it's an angsty couple verses where he talks about, I, I earnestly pursue you. Oh God, you are my God. In the, in the morning, I will earnestly seek you. I want more of you. I don't have enough of you. And if I don't have you, in Psalm 42, if I don't have you, my pillow is just covered in tears. I need you, Jesus. There are so many people in the Bible that you see with this lustful, angst-filled, I want more of Christ. Unless you think that they're just crazy people and we don't have to be like them or aspire to be like them. In verse 17 of chapter 3, Paul is going to say, Brethren, join in following my example. Be like me as I pursue Christ, and I would give up anything to have him. Be like me. Do the exact same thing. So let me ask just a couple pastoral questions for our own hearts. Does our singing at Christ Bible Church, does our preaching, do our prayers, do the books we read, do our blog posts, if anybody posts blogs, do our tweets, do our Facebook updates, do they all reveal and reflect an all-encompassing yearning for God? Use those good tools, but use them to show Jesus as far better than anything this world has to offer. Again, it's not that some of the things that Paul is mentioning were bad things. And let's be honest with ourselves. Real good can come from a desire to never miss a Sunday. Never miss a worship service. Real good can come from establishing a rule in your life that says, I'll never watch R-rated movies. That's fine. Real good can come from that. But real righteousness that will gain acceptance before God, that doesn't come from those. And real satisfaction, 
It doesn't come from those. So Paul is saying, if you are to pursue righteousness, if you want to pursue righteousness, you pursue Jesus. Don't ever let the goal of becoming... um, Don't don't ever let the goal be becoming a better you. Self-actualization, self-realization. No, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And lastly, why... This is the question that I want to ask our hearts. Why is the lustful, angst-driven, I want more of Jesus? Why is that so uncommon in the world, in churches, in evangelicalism? Why is it so uncommon? A couple of reasons. Maybe you have come to Christ. You were absolutely filled that day with gratitude for Jesus' love and for him saving you. But as you grew older, you began to feel so indebted to him that you started thinking you had to do something to earn his favor, to pay him off, to pay him back. And now you have moved on from Jesus is everything. He paid it all to a self-salvation project saying, I can do something. That's not going to bring you joy. And that'll rob Jesus of his amazingness and his worth in your eyes. Maybe for you, it's the cares of the world that begin choking out the word of God. At first, you said Jesus is far better than anything this world has to offer. And then cares of the world begin coming in and choking. And as they choke the word of God, you start to second guess and question, is Jesus really far better? Last night, I had the amazing privilege First night back from the hospital, amazing privilege. While I was reading through these sermon notes and just trying to collect my thoughts for this morning. Ethan's asleep on my chest, and I just started praying for him. This is, this is what I want. What is, what is your greatest desire for your children? What's your greatest desire for them? That they'd be superstars, that they'd be amazing at their field of work. What's your greatest desire for them? I started going through, oh, I pray that he would do this and be this and do that. And I realized I don't care about anything. I don't care about all of that. I, be, I began to pray, Jesus, all I want for Ethan, all I want for Ethan is to know that you are better than anything in this world. That's all I want. Because if he knows that, he'll work hard in his job. He'll love his wife the way he's supposed to. He'll take care of his children the way that Jesus would. And then I realized that's my prayer for Christ Bible Church. That's the only reason we are here. Why do we do the things we do? Is it to put on a show? Is it to enjoy fellowship? Is it to hang out and have a good group of friends? Guys, let's be honest. Let's be real. If this is our hobby, this is one of the lamest hobbies in the world. Okay? If this is a hobby... Set up chairs, tear down chairs, come in, not know what's going to be up here. Is it going to be set up? What's going to be happening? Are the speakers working? Prepare sermons, speak, sit, listen. I'm sure that places on your body are going numb right now. This is a lame hobby if this is our hobby. This is pathetic. We should do something different. But this isn't a hobby. This is our life. If you are a believer this morning, this is everything to you. And your prayer and my prayer for Christ Bible Church and for everybody in this room is that Jesus would be better to you than anything this world has to offer. Anything. So can you say this morning, 
I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. He's fairer than anything in creation than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have him than anything. If we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, we can say, yeah, everything else, everything that I have, it's loss. It doesn't matter compared to Jesus. Father, I pray that even as we sing and we attempt to stir our affections to be reminded that Jesus is far better, may this be a prayer in our hearts. May this be a desire in our souls. And may it be realized even this day. May sinful passions, may pleasures of this world, maybe even some that um, aren't bad, maybe good things that you have given to us to enjoy. God, may they all, in comparison to Jesus, be nothing. And may he be our all in all this day.